standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. And have I got a controversial treat for you. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Carol Hoven, an evolutionary biologist at Harvard, whose new book, Testosterone, the story of the hormone that dominates and divides us, is available to buy now. Now, that's obviously a huge topic, way more than any interview could fit in. But I'm pretty pleased with the amount of ground we covered here, from the differences in how boys and girls play, male aggression and DSDs, which are sometimes erroneously known as intersex conditions. And perhaps most pertinently, why all these topics remain so controversial and how politics and science sometimes just don't mix. I learned a huge amount from Carol's book and I found the whole topic fascinating. So I'm just going to let you crack on with listening to it, except to say that if you like what we do here at Standard Issue, one quick and easy way you can support us is to rate and review us on iTunes, particularly if you give us five stars. And why wouldn't you? Until next time, enjoy the rest of your weekend. First thing to say, Carol, is great job. I've learned a huge amount from this book. What I'd like to know is when you sit down to write science for the masses, how difficult is it to find that sweet spot where people like me, who have all of the enthusiasm, but only a GCSE in science, we're not intimidated, but people who maybe know a bit more don't feel like they're reading testosterone for dummies. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. And first, I just want to say it's been a pleasure having a little pre-podcast chat with you. It's great to meet you and I'm really happy to be here and thank you for inviting me on. You're welcome. Yeah. How to sort of structure the writing to reach my intended audience, which my intended audience ranges from people who have PhDs in the sciences to people who just want to understand themselves maybe the opposite sex, something about being trans or being gay or just being a woman or, you know, learn about the evolutionary biology of what shapes us, but maybe they have zero science background. Maybe they didn't even go to college at all. So I would love to be able to bring science to that audience in particular. So I, even at Harvard, I get a lot of students who really have had very little science exposure or don't consider themselves scientists or who are humanities majors. I teach a lot about sex and a lot of people, maybe they don't like science, but they like sex and they want to learn about that. It turns out that teaching about sex is a great way to get people enthusiastic about science. I can't tell you the number (laughs) of students and the number of students I've had who at the end of the class say, I was so intimidated. I thought science was dry and boring or that I didn't have the capacity, but you really turned me on to it. And now I want to go into, you know, major in some science field or do something more sciencey. So that is my goal because that happened to me. I never used to like science. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was terrible at it. It was dry and boring and microscopes and stuff like that. So I try to imagine I'm just talking to a smart person who doesn't know anything about science, doesn't know anything about cells, doesn't know what DNA is. So I try to provide enough background so that someone like that can, you know, read my book and understand by the end of it, what hormones are, what DNA is, what evolution is, how it works and how all those forces come together to shape us. And I think that's fun. It is challenging, but it's also a fun kind of challenge because you have to be creative about how to explain all different kinds of concepts. You know, I used the idea of baking chocolate chip cookies Mm. 
to talk about how DNA is ultimately translated into proteins. And I have to say, I had my amazingly talented brother-in-law, Felix Byrne, who is from the UK. He did all the illustrations and he did this great illustration in there of baking chocolate chip cookies. So just a shout out to him. (laughs) (laughs) You've done a few big interviews recently about your book. You were on Joe Rogan, you were on Man Talk. I'm going to describe both of those as quite testosterone heavy podcasts. But what I took from this book is that tea, testosterone, is absolutely a feminist issue, which is summed up in your subtitle, which is the story of the hormone that dominates and divides us. Why should women be interested in testosterone? And I'm going to call it tea, actually, because then that separates it from the name of your book. (laughs) Why should women be interested in tea? And what was it that drew you to that topic? I had a complicated, okay, I think most women would probably say this, you know, depends if you're homo or heterosexual, what the nature of the relationship is, but I happen to be heterosexual and I have had a complicated relationship with men, particularly when I was younger, especially in high school, I was almost totally unsupervised and kind of a wild child. I didn't actually get my diploma when I, I just was allowed to walk in my high school graduation. I didn't have a diploma because I skipped so many classes. I was staying out all night. I was getting drunk, doing drugs. And part of that was I was also sexually assaulted more than once. And that scarred me. And in writing this book, it was at, I say something about this at the end of the book that it wasn't until, you know, I, you just sort of pursue your passion, right? You pursue your intellectual interests or whatever it is. Sometimes you make the connections with your own personal history and psychology, and sometimes you don't, but I definitely started to put the pieces together. Why am I so obsessed with this hormone? Why am I so obsessed with understanding men? You know, I might have been anyway, because I'm not a man and there are men all over the place and they have most of the power in this world. And it's reasonable to be really driven to try to understand how they work and what are the forces that contribute to shaping them? Because I know that on average, they're pretty different than most of the women I know. Also, my parents got divorced when I was little. So my father was out of the house and I had three older brothers. So there's, you know, some interesting testosterone, Mm -hmm. masculine influences there that I think those planted the seeds for me. And especially, I guess I was also really drawn to understanding Something about men's preoccupation with sex and the extent that they will go to to get it, which can be cruel and damaging and, you know, physically and emotionally, obviously, to women. And I'm sure you've had a lot of guests on your show who are interested in, you know, addressing that problem. But I'm also, you know, have been supremely supported and helped by men in my life, especially in my department. Some, and I'll just say this because this is broadcasting mostly in the UK, some of the dominant men in my department at Harvard sometimes have irritated me with what I feel is sexist treatment, but people are complicated. These are people that I ultimately have grown to really even love over 20 years who I work with, who are the reason I wrote this book, totally encouraged me and supported me and believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. So I just want to show that there's, you know, a flip side. People are complicated. It's not all about understanding, you know, masculine negativity. So I think it was, first of all, my, you know, 10 years after I graduated from college, not knowing what I wanted to do and a lot of traveling really on my own, mostly with a backpack to remote parts of the globe, 
seeing all kinds of different cultures and different physical environments, and then reading a lot of books and discovering late in the game that I loved science and I wanted to use science as a tool to understand human diversity ultimately. And then I ended up, it's a long story, but getting a job out in Uganda studying chimps. And that's because I had applied to the Harvard graduate program and gotten, I got rejected because I didn't have any relevant experience. And then I went back up into that department and started harassing people and just said, you know, look, I already quit my job. I want to go mm-hmm. this, I want to do this graduate program. What do I have to do? Ultimately, I got offered this job in Uganda researching chimps and running the field site basically in Western Uganda. And it was that experience that really watching chimps and really noting the intensity of the sex differences in behavior in chimps that really strongly parallel in many ways, human sex differences in behavior, but they entirely lack human culture. So that is what convinced me that I need to understand our biology, how it differs and our evolutionary biology and how to explain the similarities between us and not just chimps, but so many other species where we see sex differences that are not the same, of course, but do have very strong parallels to what we see in humans. First, I thought I wanted to focus on genetics. And then ultimately, I really became interested in in testosterone. And I'm glad I did because it's just endlessly fascinating to me. Oh, yes. (laughs) I would say (laughs) haven't read your book. Oh, yes. It's interesting you bring the chimps up because your book opens with what is really quite a horrific story about a male chimp beating the shit out of his female partner and it's really really unpleasant I mean it must be very unpleasant to watch and male violence is a huge issue just to give the listeners some stats and this actually comes from your book 90 to 95 percent of all murders worldwide committed by men in America males commit 80 to 85 percent of all violent crime and although women commit more non-violent crime than they do violent crime nonetheless If you take fraud, which is an example you use, 70% of fraud is still committed by men. This is probably too huge a topic to tackle here. And if people want to know more, you know, they can buy the book. But I wonder if you could give listeners a little window into how T-levels affect aggression in males. And also, and this is something I found quite surprising and super interesting, how aggression can affect T-levels. I want to start by making one point, and that is, I think a myth about testosterone is that men who have more are going to be hornier and more aggressive and more dominant, and that having more T, you know, within men, within the normal healthy range, that higher T men should be just more dominant and outgoing and, you know, libidinous than lower T men. So it turns out that there's, this is true of humans and non-human animals, really those individual differences in T-level in adulthood don't predict much. And what does matter and where I think the attention should be focused is on sex differences in testosterone and how that shapes us and so many other animals. So within females, it's, that's not the case. Females are extremely sensitive to differences in testosterone. And there is more that we can predict among females uh, given individual differences in their levels. But what really matters are the whopping, complete and separate testosterone levels. Males have at least 10 to 20 times more 
than females do. And females can do perfectly fine with almost no testosterone at all. And in fact, in utero, they will develop as typical females without any hormones whatsoever. Males will not develop as typical males in terms of their bodies or their brain and behavior if they don't have very high levels of testosterone in utero. And then of course they also have high levels in puberty. So, so yeah, you asked a couple different questions about aggression and I'm getting off track, but I just want to emphasize that it's not really these individual differences among males that predict aggression. That seems very clear. Testosterone doesn't cause aggression. What it does is in male animals who have testes, who have high levels of testosterone in utero, in puberty, and in adulthood, it lowers the threshold for the expression of physical aggression. Females are super aggressive too. We're super aggressive and competitive, but we do it in a way that doesn't put our physical selves at risk. You know, sometimes we do. So, you know, just everything that I'm saying is basically on average. There's yeah. a lot of overlap in these behaviors. I'm trying to explain large patterns of behavior that for the most part are consistent everywhere around the world. So exposure to high male typical levels of testosterone at these different phases predisposes male humans and non-human animals to respond to threat or to dominance challenges in a way that they're more likely to confront it directly, whether that's physical or non-physical in humans, as the case may be. So there's a lot of attention paid to status cues What's interesting is that say two males are having, two men are having a dominance contest. Maybe something happens in, on the road and somebody cuts somebody else off and they get out of their cars because they're men. Women typically do not do that. You would very rarely see two women have some aggressive interaction on the road and then step out of their cars and confront each other. That would be exceedingly rare. You would not be super surprised to read about that in the newspaper and somebody bashing somebody else's head in. And that would be males doing that for no good reason mm-hmm. other than status competition, reputation, and a lower threshold to confronting that threat with physical action, right? And that is one way that testosterone appears to influence neural circuitry at different phases in life so that in a given environment, the social and physical environment, men and male animals are more likely to respond with that kind of confrontation rather than backing down, feeling fear and anxiety and you know, protecting oneself, which some males definitely do, but they're more likely to confront that threat physically. Females in that kind of physical confrontation situation are more likely to behave in a way that protects them physically because that benefits their ability to reproduce. You know, From an mm-hmm. evolutionary point of view in our ancestral environment, females need more fat, they need to be more nurturing, and they need to live a long, healthy life to have as many offspring as possible. And there's just no doubt that we have psychological adaptations that help us to produce as many offspring as possible. Whether we actually have them or not, we have that psychology. You know, a lot of us use birth control. Like I'm 55 and I have one one 12 year old. And males are more likely to have more muscle and less fat. And testosterone gives them that increased muscle because that muscle is something that they are designed to use in male-male competition for mates because on average, more mates gives males a reproductive advantage and on average, being healthy and fit and having resources, including fat, gives females a reproductive advantage. And that's what the sex hormones do is direct, you know, estrogen directs us to convert more of our energy into fat 
and testosterone directs us to convert more energy into muscle so that that energy can ultimately be converted into offspring. And I just want to say that nothing I've said should be taken to legitimize any particular behavior. These are just observations about how the world works. Just because something is influenced by our genes in no way means that it's immutable or that it's good. And that's just two principles to keep in mind. And this is two reasons why people resist biological explanations. And these are logical errors. You know, there's, it is true that people can misuse scientific information to support nefarious agendas, but that's where science education comes in. It's like, here's the facts. And then let's learn how to understand the implications of those facts. So the facts do not imply that these behaviors are are okay. And we know that people can control their own behavior and the environment and the acceptability of certain behaviors is what really counts. Like if you go to Singapore, there's not a lot of murder or sexual assault taking place, you know? So we know that, oh yeah, yeah, no, it totally depends on what the customs and norms and laws are. Like if you're, if you can go to jail for the rest of your life and that's always going to happen if you rape someone, then there's going to be lower prevalence of, of rape. You know, it, it depends on your religion and your customs. And some countries, as we know, it's basically men are allowed to do whatever they want with women. They're their they're, they're property. So yes, we have different human natures that has to do with evolution and biology, but the behavior is what we need to be concerned about. The feminist issue is understanding our own nature and how it may be different from the male nature. And then how we can understand that nature so that we can have some insights into, you know, how do we get the bad behaviors? How do we rein those behaviors in? The nature isn't the problem. It's acting in damaging ways on urges that might be damaging. And we know that we can do that. There's examples all over the world. Sorry, that was a super long answer. No, it was a great answer. Because it's interesting, because basically what we're saying here is that, you know, an attempt to understand something is not an attempt to excuse it. And that, I think, is sometimes the gut reaction and stuff. (laughs) I should have just said it like, just like that. That's, That's exactly right. But that leads me nicely to another topic, which again is exceptionally controversial and and you tackle it in testosterone, which is the nature-nurture argument. You know, do little boys, and to be clear, this is some, not all little boys, do they like rough and tumble because it is innate or because society encourages boys to be that way? And this is something that feminists have been arguing about for decades. And again, it's to do with the idea of if you establish something as innate and natural, does it mean it's destiny? No, it doesn't. But Carol, can you tell me what does the science say about the way boys and girls play? Yeah, that's such a good question. So given what I just said about the strategies that different sexes in humans and non-human animals use to increase their reproductive success, right? So that's how evolution shapes animals. Whatever strategies, physical and behavioral, result in more offspring, to the extent that those are expressed because of our differences in our genes or our DNA, right? That they have genetic origins in some Mm. sense. Those are the genes that are going to be selected and those are the genes that we're going to express, right? And humans are not 
immune to that, right? We are also animals that are the product of evolutionary pressures. But what's different about us, of course, is that we live in this heavily gendered society where we see all around us, everyone can see that there are certain expectations that differ by culture for the behavior of males and the behavior of females. Some cultures are you know, super gendered and some are less. We're actually less gendered in many ways than a lot of other cultures and in, in terms of the norms that are expected or even the laws around our behavior and where we can go and whether we can drive and and what we should wear. But one interesting point is that no matter the culture that you're in, boys play more physically. They like to play with other boys in larger groups and they like to play fight, right? To tackle each other, Mm and jump all over each other and they laugh and they are having a blast and they're having a blast because they have to be having a blast or else they wouldn't do it. It has to be fun. But for girls, that's just not something that's as attractive as it is for boys to pounce all over each other and pin each other down and roll around on the ground. That's just not quite as appealing on average. Okay. And we see this in non-human animals. It's not just humans. We see this in rodents. We see this in primates. We see it in all kinds of animals that same sex difference where there's a kind of rough and tumble play that male animals engage in. The reason, of course, is that play is a way to practice for adult skills and rough and tumble play allows males to practice being aggressive and how to negotiate aggressive interactions and use their bodies in a physical way and get used to being physically assaulted, but in a way that's non-threatening when you're little, then testosterone goes up and then things start to change. Not all boys like rough and tumble play and some girls like rough and tumble play. And there's some interesting scientific literature on how differences in testosterone actually affect the expression of rough and tumble play. And in non-human animals, we know that when you change testosterone exposure in utero, you can get a female to act more like a male juvenile and get her to engage in higher rates of rough and tumble play. And if you reduce testosterone in male fetuses, you will get a juvenile animal that is less likely to engage in rough and tumble play. And we see in humans that female fetuses that have a certain disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is addressed at birth. So the hormone levels are normalized at birth. They are exposed to higher than average for a female levels of androgens in utero. And there's all kinds of evidence now that shows very clearly that their behavior is on average masculinized. They're more likely to want to play with boys' toys, to engage in rough and tumble play. They're actually more likely to be lesbians as adults and attracted to male typical professions. I'm not saying all of them. I'm Mm. saying that more than the girls and women who do not have congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So there's really strong evidence that there's cross-cultural consistency in this behavior in this sex difference, that we have a mechanism, which is testosterone, that we know alters the expression of this behavior in humans and in non-human animals. There's just so much evidence that the word is parsimony or the parsimonious explanation means sort of the cleanest, clearest explanation from the observation to the hypothesis. So you want to have as few assumptions as necessary to get to the best hypothesis. And the best hypothesis here is that the same thing is going on in us that's going on in every other animal that we, where we see that males have higher rates of rough and tumble play and that testosterone is involved in this. So the 
alternative hypothesis is that no, for humans somehow, this is coincident, we're seeing coincidentally the exact same pattern mm. that we see in all these other animals. And there's the same mechanism seems to be involved, but because we have a gendered culture, we're going to assume that the reason we see this pattern in humans is because of social influences. But that to me just is illogical and misses the boat, which is that it's made always nature nurture yeah. interactions. We, our genes are expressed within a given environment and the environment is the way it is because of our genes, right? Yes, there are influences on males to behave in what might be considered, you know, more masculine kind of tough ways. And maybe parents support their boys more than their girls in that kind of play. And maybe they would discipline their boys. It's, and, and in fact, this does happen that parents and, and peers, kids' peers police their behavior. And it is very true that boys who act more feminine, and these are kids who are more likely to grow up to be gay if you're a boy and you, you want to play with the girls and you're not interested in rough and tumble play, that behavior is not approved of by peers and sometimes by parents. Mm. So there's, yes, social influences that discourage feminine behavior in boys, but we have no evidence that that does any good. So if you're going to be a feminine boy, you're going to be a feminine boy and you're going to grow up to be gay potentially. And nobody's going to stop you. That's just who you are. And all of the social influence, you might go to the store and say, yeah, dad, I, I want to buy a truck. But ultimately, that's not who you are. And that's not what it, it's not going to change your nature or your behavior. So social influences are there, but we don't have the data showing that they're really making a big difference in people's behavior. You know, it contributes and it can shape the expression of behavior in certain ways. But how would it be possible that, that those exact same influences are happening everywhere around the globe in all these vastly different cultures and in non-human animals? We know that the culture is going to shape the expression of behavior, but it's not, and it's not one or the other influence. It's both influences together, but testosterone seems to be incredibly important there. And there's good evolutionary logic why that's true. It's really interesting because you say that I was I was a complete tomboy. Me too. I've got an older <laughs> sister and I do have a much younger brother. He's 10 years younger than me. So for the sort of that formative bit of my childhood, I didn't have a brother. My dad didn't have a son. And I always wanted to be playing with the boys and my dad was fine with that and he was I always wanted to be going to yeah, work with too. him and hitting things with a hammer. But that said, I used to insist on rough and tumbling, but I absolutely friggin' hate I absolutely hated it. They would all sit on top of me, all my boy cousins, and I would yeah. just panic. <laughs> I would scream. And I wanted to be playing with them, but I didn't enjoy the form of playing that it took. Can I, I've just got to say, so I used to play baseball. I was really outdoorsy and I had three older brothers and I used to kind of want to beat up the boys. Yeah. But I, and I've heard this now from several women who call themselves tomboys. They did not like tackling other boys like they didn't like rolling around on the ground and, and want to do that but they were sort of tomboys otherwise so I don't know I find that interesting but it just also goes to show there's a huge amount of variety and it's a mistake to categorize people like me or just people who think that biology is important as saying well no you're wrong because look I was a tomboy and I liked rough and tumble play okay nobody's saying that we're completely different you know we're just trying to understand these broad patterns yeah, absolutely.
You say in your book, in general, if you find a hypothesis distasteful, a red flag should immediately go up. There is a clear and present danger that you will discount the evidence that supports the hypothesis. This might seem obvious, but it's something that took me a long time to learn and put into practice. And I found that really interesting because we do have gut reactions. And it's important to say, you know, like we said, seeking to understand something isn't the same as excusing it. You know, nature isn't destiny. Difference does not make one thing better than the other. It merely makes it different. Science is a political football more now than ever. And I wonder what you make of that. I mean, be that in issues like you're talking about biology or be it in things like coronavirus. Yeah. So do you mind if I start with my story about being in a seminar? No, I think that's perfect. I was hoping you would. (laughs) I think it's a powerful anecdote. I mean, at least it, it was a powerful event for me. So when I started in grad school, and again, this was me after not having been a stellar student (laughs) in high school and 10 years after I graduated from college, I was like, holy shit, I'm here at Harvard. And, you know, I kind of couldn't believe it and did feel like an imposter and they'd made some some sort of mistake. I've talked to so many women who had a similar experience. They're going to dig up my application and look through it and figure out that they missed something important in there. So I'm in this grad seminar. I'm, you know, significantly older than a lot of the other students and different, I think, in a lot of ways. And there was a British male professor in there. And we, that day, it was on the evolution of human sexuality. And that day we were talking about a paper on the evolution of rape. And this was in the um, like 2001 or something. So this was ages ago before Me Too, et cetera. And we're talking about the evolution of rape and the scorpion fly. So the paper, the author of the paper was generating a hypothesis about the evolution of rape in humans. And it was based on the example of the scorpion fly, which if he cannot gather the resources and present them to the female in a way that would allow her to freely acquiesce to sex, he has a special appendage that allows him to pin her down and rape her, essentially. The author called it rape. So we were sort of going around the table and everybody was supposed to give their feedback on what they thought about this hypothesis in this paper. And it was my turn to talk. And I've already told you about my you know, personal history in this area. And of course, it doesn't always come up, but it came up then. I didn't, you know, connect the dots that part of why I was reacting emotionally to this scientific hypothesis was because of my own history and how sort of sensitive I was about this stuff. But I'm also a super emotional person, which is part of why I'm drawn to science, I have to say. I now understand that this helps me get control over things that feel sometimes feel out of control. So I'm in the seminar, I'm reading the paper, everybody's staring at me. And as I do often, I just started to kind of tear up a little bit, but I was angry and I was hurt and inside and I felt small and sorry. I don't know why, like every single time I talk about this, um, it's still very emotional, but I do. (laughs) So I did, I felt small. And I think when I feel small, I get, that's when I get angry. 
and I want to feel big that helps me feel bigger somehow. And I said, this guy is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't, wasn't what I was supposed to be doing as a scientist, right? So although that felt like the right response because it hurt me emotionally. Mm. I'm here at Harvard trying to get a PhD and be a scientist and I'm confronted with a hypothesis that pissed me off and I rejected it immediately. This guy's an asshole. Like I don't even care about the hypothesis. He's just a jerk for even suggesting that this could be the case. So I think now what might happen is, first of all, there would have been a trigger warning yeah. about the paper. I'm, and second of all, the professor would have said, oh, are you okay? Blah, blah, blah. Here's the tissue. But luckily he was British and it was <laughs> 2001 and that didn't happen. And he kept redirecting me to the, analyze the data and to try to comment on whether I thought that this hypothesis made sense in light of the data. So in retrospect, this has been incredibly important for me as a scientist. He was respecting me as a scientist. He wasn't patronizing me. Mm. He wasn't telling me what he thought I needed to hear. He was just expecting me to behave as a scientist should behave, which can sometimes be difficult when you encounter information about you know, somebody's ideas that just feels bad. It's now I think people welcome you embracing your feelings and rejecting a hypothesis or saying this guy's an asshole. And we're almost given license to judge people who have ideas that we find offensive, mm. right? And that's exactly what happened, except I ended up feeling respected and empowered. And I ended up knowing that, oh my God, I can recognize that this is pissing me off. I can recognize that I'm hurt. I can connect it to my history or whatever. That really doesn't have any bearing on the truth of the hypothesis or on reality. And I want to know, I want to understand what motivates male sexual assault. Even if it's uncomfortable, it's better for me to know the truth, right? Yeah. So it's better for me to analyze this guy's research and his hypothesis. And I learned to do it. And then I can go to my therapist later, right? So it's not about, like, I'm not in therapy when I'm in that seminar, right? I'm a scientist. So I teach, I tell my students this story, because we're in, I know they're encountering ideas in my classes that are difficult. And I want to give them the tools that I have, that I learned. And I have to work at this all the time because I'm always encountering stuff that bothers me, that makes me emotional. And I have to recognize it and I have to learn how to think clearly and critically. That doesn't mean I'm going to neglect myself or my emotions or you know, try to get people to write papers that use better language or they're a little more sensitive or whatever. So you, your original question was about politics. And I think I connected it somewhat to politics, but it's just sad what's going on, that that facts are becoming so politicized. And I, I don't have the answer to that, but I do know that I would risk a lot to stand up to the pressure to yield to ideology over facts. You know, I think it's important to be sensitive. It's important to acknowledge people's feelings, get their feedback. But it's also important to value the tools of science and not to dilute those tools of science. That's to me sort of all we have sometimes that people from different political orientations can agree on is how to use science to understand the world. Yeah. So it's sad what's happening. And that's part of why I wrote the book because I am trying to show that you can be a good person, a sensitive person who cares about the world and cares about all kinds of people with all kinds of differences, but you can still respect them by 
trying to say, look, here's the evidence about this. And if you disagree, then please bring me a p- different kinds of evidence and we can talk about that. Yeah. And do you yeah. know what I would say, Carol, is having read your book, there are many things that you bring up other hypotheses from other scientists. And while you might then go on to explain why they're wrong or not even explain, just prove that they're wrong, you always seem to talk about their work in a very respectful fashion you don't seem to be confrontational in the way that you do that and I find that very laudable in today's climate I have to say thank you speaking of political footballs I have one last question for you and I wonder if we could end by talking about DSDs often erroneously called intersex conditions which are talked about a lot but understood very little One of the examples you use is a student of yours who approached you to do some research about the condition she herself has. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about Jenny and how tea has affected her life. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. So I did use the term, I just want to be clear. So DSD is a different, generally, uh, I think difference of sexual development is a fine term because I think if a condition is not causing a medical problem that has to be fixed, then it can just be considered variation. And I think that's a more sensitive term. Sometimes disorder is appropriate, but what we're talking about are differences of sexual development where some people, they might have sexed traits that are not what you would expect, say, given their sex chromosomes. Um, And there's lots of variety in these traits. There's lots of, you know, you can be an XX person with a huge clitoris that looks something like a penis, or you could be an XY person that who has something that looks like a vagina. Some people might consider it a disorder if it, you know, certain things have to be corrected. But one thing we learn from all of these different DSDs is how testosterone can shape behavior in, in ways that are independent from the body. So Jenny, that's not her real name, but she was a student I ended up getting really close to who took my class hormones and behavior. She was in my class and she was just like any other young woman in my class, except she was actually, and I'm being completely honest, she was actually more feminine and sort of attractive and kind of glowing (laughs) that I don't know how else to describe her, really beautiful inside and out than a lot of my students. She had just long, beautiful, shiny hair and bright blue eyes and was just a very vivacious person. So I had taught about DSDs as part of the class. And at the end of the class, she came to my office. She had never been to my office hours before. And she said she wanted to talk to me. And sometimes when students want to talk to me, it is because they have some family member who has a DSD or has some other hormonal issue, or they have something personal they want to tell me, or sometimes it's because I've used some language that was offensive or something like that. And they want to come talk to me. So she began to tell me her story, which was that she came from a a religious Midwest family. She had a very happy upbringing and was a typical little girl when she was, I think 13 or 14 had failed to get her period or even by 15, her parents took her to an OBGYN. And ultimately what they discovered was that she actually 
did not have ovaries. She had testes instead inside of her body that had not descended. So normally in, in males, the testes will descend in the later stages of pregnancy. And that's due to the actions of testosterone, which is obviously produced by the fetal testes. So she had testes. She did not have a uterus. She had a vagina, but it, again, it didn't connect to a uterus. She didn't have ovaries. She wasn't producing sperm but she had XY sex chromosomes and was producing high levels of testosterone. So that's quite a lot for a young woman to learn about herself, especially mm-hmm. given her environment and everything. She considers herself exceedingly lucky. She would say blessed because she had an excellent medical team and a really supportive family. Not everyone who goes through these experiences. In fact, many of them have had horrible really traumatic experiences where there's surgeries and they're lied to. And so she had sort of an optimal experience going through this. She had what is called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, which means that she was sort of trucking down in development, the typical male pathway. She had XY sex chromosomes. And if you have the Y chromosome, you're going to have the sex determining region of the Y chromosome, which is a gene that transcribes a protein that ultimately causes your gonads to develop as testes rather than ovaries. And then they begin to produce testosterone. And then it's the testosterone that sort of takes over and masculinizes your genitalia and everything else. So she produced the testosterone, but her androgen receptor, the gene that codes for her androgen receptor, which is itself a protein, had a severe mutation. So it didn't work. So that means her testosterone was being broadcast throughout her body from her ovaries, but she had no receptors to pick it up. It's as though there's a radio signal being sent out, but the radio is not tuned in to that specific station. And it's just sort of floating around the universe and it's never heard. So what her example shows, she's a, you know, a totally normal woman in, in every other way. And she's married and will probably adopt to um, you know have a family. But what it shows is that she has XY chromosomes. She has testes. She has testosterone. She went through a a feminizing puberty naturally because she chose not to have her testes taken out, which is sometimes advice that is given. All estrogen comes from testosterone precursors. So her testosterone was converted. Enough of it was converted into estrogen to give her, you know, breasts and wide hips and all that other stuff. She has no acne. She has no body hair because she has no androgens. So it just goes to show that it's not about having testes. It's not about having a Y chromosome. It's about the action and reception of this hormone that changed everything. One tiny mutation in one gene. It caused her not to produce testosterone. And she's essentially a, a woman, you know, and there's just zero masculinity about her. But she came to my class. So I had worked with her uh, the next semester on learning about her condition. And then she came to my class the next semester and told her story to the whole Harvard class. Like she had never come out before. She stood up in front of everybody and told that story. I, Jenny, have testes inside my body. I have more testosterone than most of the men here. So the bravery that she showed blew me away and 
you know, women are brave as fuck, mm. right? And it's not because of testosterone. Yeah. So men can be brave sometimes in risking their li- physical lives, like it, to save the life of somebody they don't even know. But but it's not totally surprising to me that a woman like Jenny will stand up in front of the class. I'm not sure a lot of guys would do that. And she did that. And I thought that was the one of the boldest things I've ever seen. And she really inspired me. Because it's important that, like I say, it's so misunderstood. And so often I'll see people talking about intersex conditions. And, and I just think there's a lot of talk and not a lot of actual life experience out there right. of people saying this is this is what it's like to live with this. This conditions. is what it is. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's fantastic. Carol, this has been absolutely a cracking. I've never been one of those feminists that ever felt the need to threaten to castrate a man. But after reading your book, I reckon I could give it a fair crack of the whip. <laughs> Testosterone in all good bookshops now. Have you got something else on the horizon? I'm tired and I miss my son. So <laughs> I, that's what's on the horizon. I, I want to sleep and hang out with my family. Brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for your time, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Standard Issue for All Women.